Hello and welcome to this edition of the Redheaded Preacher Podcast. This is for Wednesday, September 12th, 2021. I am the Redheaded Preacher. My name is Richard Lanford. I'm the pastor of St. Peter's United Church of Christ in Skokie. We are a suburb just outside of the great city of Chicago. And I thank you for tuning in. This week, our message with the lectionaries coming from the uh, revised New Common Lectionary. The sermon is called Set Our Minds. And the scriptures, which are read today by Dan Gunther, who is also one of our deacons, are Proverbs 1, 20 through 33, James 3, 1 through 12, and the gospel is Mark 8, verses 27 through 38. Again, uh, before we start, let me lead us in a brief opening prayer, and then we'll let Dan take it from there. God of every second, every hour, every day, every season, we give you thanks for your steadfast promises to steadfastly be with us. We humbly ask that in your grace you would be with us as we listen to this, and that you bless it and use it to build us up as you may need us to be built up for the living of these days. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen. Our first reading is Proverbs chapter 1, verses 20 and 33. Wisdom cries out in the street. In the square, she raises her voice. At the busiest corner, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? Give heed to my reproof. I will pour out my thoughts to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refused, have stretched out my hand and no one needed. And because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I, I also will laugh at your, at your calamity. I will mock when the panic strikes you, when panic strikes you like a storm, and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me but I will not answer. They will seek my diligently, but will not find me. Because they hate knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despise all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the food of their way and be sated with their own devices. For waywardness kills the simple, kills the simple and the complacency of fools destroys them. But those who listen to me will be secure and will live at ease without dread of disaster. This ends the reading from from Proverbs. Like last week, our epistle lesson is from the letter of James, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For all of us make many mistakes. Anyone who makes no mistakes is, in speaking is perfect, able to keep the whole body in check with the bridle. 
but we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us. We guide their whole bodies. Or look at ships. Though they are so large that it takes strong winds to drive them, yet they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great exploits. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue is placed among our members as a world of iniquity. It stains the whole body, sets a fire, sets on fire the cycle of nature, and is itself set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by the human species, but no one can tame the tongue, a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless the Lord and Father, and with it, we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. Does a spring pour, pour forth with the same opening, both fresh and brackish water? Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, yield olives, or a grapevine figs? No more can salt water yield fresh. This ends the reading from James. Today we have Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. This will sound familiar to many of us because we often hear part or all of this passage during Lent. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist and others, Elijah and still others, one of the prophets, he asked them, but who do you say that who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah, and he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If you want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for, for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of them, the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the Holy Angel. Here ends the reading from the Gospel lesson in the scriptures for this morning's service. Thanks be to God for this God's holy word. 
Have you ever been somewhere where someone asked a question and uh, it could be in a classroom or a simple conversation and you thought you had an answer, a good insightful answer, only to be disappointed by how it was received? I have. At the University of Minnesota, I had a course in the history of American drama. And at one point, the professor in a lecture asked the class, what is a rhetorical question? Thinking I had an answer that no one else might have, I raised my hand. The professor went on without looking at me, at least I hope he didn't look at me, but he might have, as he continued, what is a rhetorical question? A question that doesn't have an answer. Down went my hand. But I learned something. I've never forgotten that a rhetorical question is a question that does not have an answer. Perhaps in Mark's version of our story, Peter too might have felt like he was a little head and shoulders above the other disciples, and he was to a point when he replied to Jesus' question, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. In Matthew's version, Jesus almost claps him on the shoulders with a word of congratulations, and he expounds on that. That is not in Mark. You may have even been expecting to hear it, but it wasn't there, because it's not. Instead, all we have is what's referred to as the messianic secret in Mark. That's where Mark, re and then we hear it when re Mark reports right away after Peter's acclamation, you are the Messiah, and he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Jesus did not want Peter to broadcast this perception, at least until Jesus had time to reinterpret Messiah to his people. It's not exactly like being told you do not have the answer to a question which has no answer. But Simon was correct with the word he used, Messiah, Moshiach in Hebrew, but most likely he was very off in his thinking about what kind of Messiah Jesus was to be. There were a handful of established Jewish beliefs about what the Messiah would be when he came, nationalistic, militaristic, triumphalist, and so on, with scriptures to back them up. Jesus did not fit those theologies as they were understood, and we are about to find out ourselves once more again. And he did not think that Peter understood that. He, no, not that kind of Messiah. So after Peter's affirmation, Jesus tried to tell them. And we heard Dan read, then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside. Peter, excuse me, son of God, I'm going to take you aside. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, why would Peter take Jesus aside and get in his face about him suffering, being rejected by the religious establishment Jews, and being killed? Because that was not Peter's Messiah. That shouldn't happen to you. That shouldn't happen to the Messiah. His Messiah was not going to suffer or be killed and certainly not being rejected by the chief priests, etc., even if Jesus has occasionally thrown down with the chief priests and scribes. Jesus, man, you got this wrong. Peter wanted Jesus 
to get behind him and come back to him. What might have caused Peter's eruption even more is something I learned from a commentary by Ronald Kernighan. Speaking of Jesus' words about this suffering, etc., as the kind of Messiah he was going to be, Kernighan said, the crux of the disagreement is the idea that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed. Behind this translation is a Greek construct called the divine passive which means it conveys the idea that God is the one ultimately responsible for the impending death of the Son of Man. If perceived, this would have upset the big fishermen even more. Yet Jesus was not going to return to Peter as it were on Peter's terms. Uh Uh-uh. Peter had just confirmed angrily Jesus' expectation of him. Jesus had to tell this very important follower that he had to change his way of thinking. Jesus turned away from Simon Peter towards the others, putting Peter behind him literally as well as metaphorically when he retorted, get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things but on human things. That's pretty harsh. For Jesus to be so, the lesson he must teach has to be that essential. And Peter had to grasp and accept that suffering, being rejected by the head honchos of Judaism, and be killed and rise again. These were all parts of Jesus as Messiah and Son of Man in God's plan. Going a bit deeper... You and I can think that Peter reacted negatively to Jesus, not only because of what Jesus described as way against the expectations of the people, not only because of the linguistic implication that God was the responsible party, but also because if that's where Jesus is headed, that's where his followers will eventually end up. United Church of Christ pastor and writer Cheryl Lindsay wrote, Peter, at least, does not want to hear it. He appears to think Jesus has become possessed. Jesus forces him to face the fact or face the truth he does not want to believe. It's essential for Peter and for the future of the church. She then shares some work done by one Gary Wheaton, and I'll quote from him a little bit. The words of Jesus to Peter are widely translated along the lines of, you are not thinking the way God thinks, but the way people think. Wheaton examines classical and koine, or street Greek, usage of that construction, and he says it gives a lot of support for this alternative translation. You are not on the side of God, but on the side of people. Jesus indicates that by his actions. Peter has abdicated the disciple relationship with Jesus and assumed the posture of an opponent. The thrust of Jesus' directive to Peter, get behind me, is almost certainly not to banish, but to summon him to return to Jesus to fall back into line behind him with this new understanding. End quote. 
So Peter, Simon Peter, in his own comfort level with what Messiah was believed to be, and his total discomfort that the implied future for Jesus and those who are following him is suffering rejection and death, rebukes him. He wants Jesus to come back to him. Jesus wants Peter to come to him. Through changing his way of thinking, through setting his mind not on the way people are thinking, but human things or people's ways of thinking, but on divine things and divine ways of thinking, Peter will be faithfully on board. With foretold hardship is also foretold promise. Jesus will rise from the dead. And if the followers go through some of this that Jesus said, why wouldn't that not also be a promise to them? You know, when I started writing this and coming up with this title, it occurred to me that there are any number of songs you know, about changing our minds or setting our minds toward a specific direction. From the last hit by George Harrison, a cover of James Ray's recording, I got my mind set on you, to Bob Dylan's God-leaning, gonna change my way of thinking. From Christian recording artist Margaret Becker's Keep My Mind, where she sings, Keep my mind on higher things, keep my mind on truth. Keep my mind on the anchor of love that I have found in you. To the spiritual, woke up this morning with my mind stayed on Jesus. Woke up this morning with my mind stayed on Jesus. We have music that celebrates a mental, even spiritual change of mind. It's not just to change our way of thinking, but to keep that change and let it grow in following Jesus. Set our minds, not on merely human things, but on the things of God, including sometimes taking risks and making sacrifices as part of the toll we pay on the road following Jesus in our daily lives. These hardships, which come one way or another while we bear our crosses of faith, hope, and love, they come with the promises, too, of God's steadfast love and God's everlasting presence. And the presence in trial and rejoicing, which our UCC Statement of Faith lifts up. There is the promise of resurrection in Christ's name, somehow, sometime, both early earthly kinds, when God lets new life grow where there is or was death. And then the heavenly kind, when eternal life keeps going after we've breathed our last. Those who identify as runners, this is an example about the, the difficulty and the hardship, but then there's also this good stuff. Uh, <laughs> that's putting it mildly. Uh, those who identify as runners might tell of achieving the runner's high. It's the euphoria that comes after a significant and intense period of effort. It does not come easily. It does not necessarily come with every run, and certainly does not come when you, don't, when you, you, know, when you fail to run. To get to the runner's high, a runner has to endure the hardest part. The glorious feeling, the runner's high, is a consequence 
of profound effort and energy to which the runner has set her mind. Cheryl Lindsay, the UCC pastor, opens that up to churches. She said, as Jesus explained his coming journey to the disciples, he reveals the resurrection as a conclusion and consequences of the effort and energy he will expend in enduring the cross. Where, she asks, what do, not where, but what do we fail to gain if we are afraid of the requirements to get there? And because we're afraid. Maybe the problem, she goes on, isn't that the church is dying. Maybe the problem is that the church is afraid of the cost of new life. The church does not want the pain and sacrifice that newness requires. Maybe the problem is that the church is so set on human things, attendance, influence giving, that we rebuke the truth of divine things. We can turn, we can turn the public witness of the good news into private complaint about the loss of the glory of Christendom, of those glory years. It's time to set our minds on the way, the truth, and the life of Christ, she says, and get behind Jesus. That's one way to think about it, and I shared it because I thought it was thought-provoking. Here's another way I like to look at it as I draw close to an end. With a mind set on Jesus, or stayed on Jesus, uh, when we are called to service, you and I are no longer chained. We are free from what might be habitual human thinking, like, I have to go do this. I have to attend this board meeting. I've got to be at the council meeting. I have to lead Sunday school chapel and preach this morning. Instead, with our minds stayed on following Christ, on serving God, we are freed to think and say, I get to prepare for the Lenten Bible study this evening. I get to be in council this afternoon. I get to sing in the choir, join the protest against racial injustice. I get to set up for communion and clean up afterwards, and so on. Serving God in the church and in the wider church is an honor, a way to follow, a way to set our minds, again, on things that plant, nurture, advance, and sometimes even bring to an honorable close divine things, or things of God. We do not have to go to worship or help at the rummage sale or host a coffee hour. We get to. We participate then in the building up of the community of faith or communities near or far. This building up often includes you. Or sometimes it's service you bear cheerfully which blesses others. How Christ-like. If you and I set our minds on the things of the surprising love you to death and rise again in hope Christ, well, that change in thinking will take hold. It may take time, if that is not now how we think already. I don't have to, I get to. Trust the cumulatives. Keep it up. Don't give up. We get to set our minds on higher ground. Set our minds and follow Jesus in trying to rescue God's creation, this planet. Set our minds on the things of God and consider teaching Sunday school. Set our minds on the things of God and listen to the voice of wisdom, capital W, as she exhorts us in Proverbs. 
set our minds on the things James teaches us, like clean up our language. Set and stay our minds on Jesus, which helps us get out of our own head, which can lead us away from feeling sorry for ourselves if we are, and reach out, finding joy in helping others. I mentioned Cheryl Lindsay. In looking at this passage and its larger meanings, she asks some good, appropriate questions. One question is, what prompts you to consider living differently? It is followed by, what compels you to change your life? What compels you to change your life? And lastly, she requests us to put our imagination to use asking, what does it look like to live your life based on divine considerations? A mind set on higher things, the things of love, reconciliation, sharing our faith, witnessing against the injustice and exploitation of vulnerable peoples, joy, accompaniment, the ministry of accompaniment, Prayer, recovery, healing, and on. Setting our minds and living out the way we've set our minds. We get to do this by the grace of God. So let us so set our minds. Amen. To refer to George Harrison once more, he's, uh, it's been 50 years since his seminal first solo album, All Things Must Pass, came out. And All Things Must Pass including this edition of the Red-Headed Preacher podcast. Bless you for listening, and God bless your week. Bye.